the damage from the storms last week has us all cleaning up still here in Southeast Michigan. On the podcast today, we are going to talk about what that damage looks like and how to do better. Hey, it's Stephen Henderson, and we are going to talk today with business owners, community activists, and community groups about how they're adapting to the things that are happening because of these violent and more frequent storms. We'll also hear from Nick Schreck, who is an environmental law expert at U of D Mercy Law. But before we get to Nick Schreck, I want to talk with some folks in a part of Detroit that gets especially hard hit by these storms and where the consequences look a little different, I think, than they do in other parts of the city. We've got Josh Elling here with us. He is the chief executive officer of Jefferson East Incorporated, which is a nonprofit that supports neighborhood residents and businesses on Detroit's east side. Josh, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Jerome Brown. He is the co-owner of a really wonderful spot on the east side, Detroit Soul, which lost power because of the recent storm. Jerome, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you. I also need to note before we start our conversation that our producers here at Detroit Today did reach out to DTE, our local power company, or at least one of them, the bigger one, uh, to have them come on and talk about what they're doing to restore power to people's homes. The company was not able to meet our request. Uh, we will keep trying, though. We would love to get someone from DTE in here to talk about what they're doing, how they're thinking differently about all this, uh, because the new normal is that uh, people are going to lose power because of weather, and they're going to have to respond. Also, I should note that DTE Energy is a financial contributor to us here at WDET. Now, Jerome, I want to start with you. Uh, tell me about what happened at Detroit Soul and how it affects your business. Good morning. Thank you again for inviting us. Mm-hmm. So we, um, the last storm um, that happened on Thursday, uh, we lost power, and we lost power for three and a half days. And so you can imagine um, a new restaurant being open eight months in the city of Detroit. We specifically so um, chose the city of Detroit to do business in. And um, so the power going out is just um, probably the small effect of what happened. But behind the scene, what that means is we have um, food spoilage for those days that we have to eliminate and have to expend um, resources to replace the food. Also, those employees that work three and a half days now are not working. Um, we hire employees uh, from the neighborhood predominantly because we want to affect the economic conditions in that um, location. Mm-hmm. And so now we have employees who are not employed for that three and a half days. They can't go get unemployment. They're just out of money. And also our customers are not able to receive the wonderful food that we serve. And um, so that means when we did open after three and a half days and employees returned to work, we had to work them longer hours. Mm-hmm. So that's another effect. We had to work them longer hours because now we have to rush and get ready for the community. But we couldn't work them the amount of hours that they would have worked to replace that income. So it's this uh, trickle effect that happens when the power shuts out like this. Yeah. So, so uh, three and a half days uh, without power. That's a long time, and as you point out, it, it's, it has this kind of ripple effect inside uh, your business. But I also would imagine that the uncertainty uh, of that time 
causes some some chaos, wreaks a little havoc as well. Tell me what DTE was able to communicate to you about what the situation was. Were you just waiting? No, you know it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I remember a few years ago we have a, another location on the Eight Mile De Quinta area. Um, when the power would go out, we could call them and or go on the website, and we knew specifically when the power went out, and they could give an estimated time when the um, power was gonna come back on. This last year, power outage did not have that form of communication. Now we have no, very little communication, maybe you see it on the uh, evening news, when you call um, the communication, it's just power out, outage, no estimated time. So that, that was a little um, new to us. And also, uh, Stephen, I have to talk about another impact to our business, mm-hmm. specifically this time, it's because we were closed so many days in a food business, um, we lost all that food. We had to um, go to our insurance company and put in a claim. So here's another business um, uh, impact to us that we have to file a claim. So when you file a claim, you know what's going to happen, right? You got to hide the doctor, we got to pay. But what's going to happen in the next six months with renewal? My rates are going to go up mm-hmm. because of that claim. So the impact continues past much father passing when the initial impact occurs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Josh, I want to bring you into the into the conversation here. Of course, you you do a lot of work on the east side, not just with businesses, but also with residents and community groups. Uh, give us a sense of what you're seeing and experiencing on the east side after these storms. Uh, I, I said in, in, in the open that, that the east side is a place that gets particularly hard hit by these storms for many reasons, uh, and, and the damage looks different and takes on a whole different dynamic. Uh, let us know what the, the last few days have been like. Well, you know, it's been very challenging, not only for, for our small business owners like Sam and Jerome from Detroit Soul, but I, I swung by Yellow Light Donuts on Saturday morning, and they only had partial power, so they only could serve coffee, so they were down employees. You know, our apartment buildings had been without of power for many days and residents not able to, uh, to you know, keep cool as, as effectively. And so this new normal of climate change and these extreme storms is basically making it much more expensive to live here in the city of Detroit, in the region, heck, on planet Earth, right? I mean, and how do we prepare for this? In 2021, the massive rainstorms then, we had 4,000 homeowners come to us looking for assistance, right? So we've been able to approach this by working with you know, businesses and, and homeowners. How do we make their homes and business more resilient? How do we elevate systems in, in basements? How do we you know, get water away from people's houses? But I've got to quote you know, Wayne State professor Bill Schuster here at Wayne State who says, water always wins. <laughs> and how do we live with this new normal to make sure our residents are protected, our business owners are protected, protected and our infrastructure gets beefed up to handle this and try to keep some of the stormwater out of the uh, the combined sewage overflow systems that we have here in metropolitan Detroit. So this has become the defining organizing principle of Jefferson East now. Mm-hmm. How do we build resilient homes, resilient businesses, and resilient neighborhoods in the face of the new challenges of climate change? Yeah. Uh, the infrastructure problems that we face on the east side are also a little different than they are in other parts of the city and other parts of the region. Talk about yeah. why that's so and what that looks like. Yeah. Uh, you know, neighborhoods like Jefferson, Chalmers, the Gross Points, even cities like Dearborn, 
we're at the end of the funnel. So all of the stormwater systems that flow in from the east side and the west side flow out from these core communities. So in Jefferson Chalmers, you know, triple threat, right? We're below sea level, essentially. Water's got to be pumped out of that neighborhood. So if the pumps fail, it's even worse. You've got shoreline flooding. You've got surface flooding. And these neighborhoods that are dealing with sort of the unmitigated stormwater runoff from 50 years of suburban sprawl, all the parking lots we've paved in, in, in outlying areas, all of that's running down and overwhelming the, uh, the, the sewer system there. And so when it rains up in Macomb County or, or Oakland County, that's going to flow down and basements are going to back up in Jefferson Chalmers. Mm. Now, we've done a lot of work on this. We helped the city of Detroit and the city of Dearborn get plugged into specialized training on how to develop their plans for community development block grant disaster resilience dollars. Also, Jefferson East, whenever we do a project, our parking lots have green stormwater infrastructure. So the parking lot outside Detroit Seoul, outside Norma G's, those alone can store 800,000 gallons of stormwater. We need to be doing that region-wide. We've got to take the flow out of the system. All those parking lots in Canton, the businesses that that uh, flooded, we've got to convert some of those parking lots into storage facilities for this. Because we can't just build our way out of it with gray infrastructure, which yeah. is critically important. Right. We've got to find ways to slow the flow. Yeah, uh, Jerome, I want, to, I want to talk about how and whether, I guess, you plan long-term for something like this. As you said, you're a pretty new business, and there are all kinds of challenges to opening a new business. There are all kinds of challenges to opening a restaurant. <laughs> I give you all kinds of credit for uh, for leaping off that cliff. Um, but but give me a sense of of if you have to account for this kind of disruption, uh, how you plan, how you plan for the future. You know, so um, you know, in your base business of contingency plans. Um, some of this can be absorbed. And so you have your contingency plan, the, the what ifs, you know, the what ifs, and that could be anything, electrical, power, water. Um, but um, those scenarios are only a few. When you have a, a multiple interruptions like this, it's very um, tough. So it's a new normal for us now to go back and look at our contingency plans and see how do we deal with this. You know, the basis, yeah, we can get a um, generator, um, that's a, an easy, um, but it's not for a lot of businesses to uh, afford a generator. It can cost you anywhere from $8,000 to $12,000 unit to add on top of all of your other building um, costs. But and yes, we'll have to take a look at that and see how can we better plan for this. However, it is going to be a business impact. And then, okay, so here's another impact. So as you continue to add that, flow goes from the business to what? your consumer. And so now you're trying to provide a product mm -hmm. that's uh, economically um, viable for neighborhood businesses because we are neighborhood businesses. All our businesses are in the neighborhood purposely to provide good food at a quality price. But when you started adding these extra costs, the traditional cost goes back down to the customer. Now we could be impacting the communities that we're in to um, charge more so yes yeah. yeah okay we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we are going to continue this conversation with uh, josh elling and with jerome brown we will also hear from some other folks on the east side about how they are dealing with the damage from last week's storms we'll be right back more Detroit today Uh, 
want to go to the phones uh, and and talk with Russ Russ Vallant. Uh, Russ is uh, also an East Sider. Uh, he's a resident of the Seven Mile and Van Dyke area. He's president of the Block Club where he lives, and he helps people uh, deflood uh, areas around their homes. Uh, Russ, welcome to Detroit today. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me. So, uh, Russ, uh, tell me about what's happening in your neck of the woods uh, and what you've been called to, I guess, respond to uh, for your yeah. neighbors. Well, um, con- concretely, we have one uh, issue that's really uh, standing out in our neighborhood on Stotter Street, which is a north-south street that... Um, uh, one block west of Van Dyke, and on the block just second block south of Eight Mile, there is a lake that is formed by the blockage in the sewer line, and it's been there ever since the storm. You know, and it's uh, stranded cars. It, it's uh, it's not just flooding the street; it's flooding uh, up up to the porches on one side of the street and over the sidewalks on both sides of the street. Hmm. It's 18 inches deep at the curb. So it's a lake and uh, cars are stranded in it. And uh, uh, residents, of course, have been calling the water and sewerage department for days about it. And uh, so far there hasn't been a response, Hmm. uh, an adequate response at least. Uh, And so that's... very, very disturbing. This street has had some block problems before, um, and I know on other streets sometimes uh, they really don't get the equipment in and go down and dig out the whole problem. Right. Uh, and it, it, the problem recurs, and I'm hoping this time they're going to get to it. But I, uh, it, it reminds me of the 2021 flood and the Lower East Side mm-hmm. that some of the folks were talking about. Yeah, uh, but because this is uh, localized to the street drains, it's not flooding the basements. Yeah, yeah, Russ, I really appreciate uh, you calling in and sharing that. And and I have to say that uh, when I go over to the east side, I'm seeing these lakes, these street lakes, I guess you might call them, in in lots of places. Uh, and and I'm not seeing as much of that in other parts of the city, which goes to this point I was making earlier, which is that, uh, you know, the infrastructure on the east side and the positioning of the east side geographically uh, make it more vulnerable than than other parts uh, of, of the community. Uh, Russ, I hope that uh, that gets better. I hope you do get a response uh, from from DWSD and, and other folks who, who could help with that uh, soon because uh, – we can't live like this. Uh, Russ, I really appreciate you calling in. Um, I, I want to go next to uh, Jocelyn. Jocelyn is also, uh, I believe, on the east side, part of the Citizen District Council in the Jefferson Chalmers neighborhood. Jocelyn, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. So, Jocelyn, tell me what's happening where you are. Well, you know, I'm thinking. The fact is that we're always on alert whenever there is a big rainfall. And our most concern is about the welfare of the residents because in our past experience, uh, uh, 
June of 2021, she only had water, she had sewage, which is a health hazard. Mm-hmm. And we're still suffering because we're much aware of the fact that many of our residents have had to leave the, their home because they weren't able to really cover to the point where the houses are livable. Uh, Jocelyn. That's still a concern. Yeah. Um, are you seeing sewage back up this time in in parts of? No. No. No, we're not. And thank God. There's some evidence that the pump stations are obviously working, you know, and there's a big when everything that's in place to deal with it actually functions. Yeah, yeah. Jocelyn, I, I, I really appreciate you calling in as well and letting us know uh, what's happening over there in uh, in Jefferson Chalmers. Uh, Josh, Ellie, I want to come back to you uh, and talk just a little more about the time between the summer of 2021, when we first saw these really violent storms and saw the consequences meet out really differently on the east side, and now have there been efforts to to deal with some of the infrastructure? Are we making some progress that maybe we just can't see yet uh, or see the benefit of? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's a really good question. So it wasn't just 2021. We had this happen in 2016 and yes. 2018. So it happens again and again. So the good news is, is as Jocelyn pointed out, um, is they did after 2021, the pumps failed or some of the pumps failed at the fruit pumping station. And so DWSD, more, more investments in backup power. So those appear to be working. So, you know, we can breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. But like Jocelyn said, whenever it rains, you know, I get text messages. I was up tracking the radar. And we mm-hmm. just know that that neighborhood's at, at risk. So the pumping station upgrades are critical. I do know DWSD was doing more than $15 million of work on sewer lines. The new basement protection program that the city rolled out, we're getting residents plugged into that to put the check valves on people's houses. Mm-hmm. But as, as Ms. Harris pointed out, you know, the real challenge is we still have damage from 2021. We're working with our friends here at Wayne State University Center for Urban Studies. They've done a mold study looking at more than 700 basements, and they're finding just really nasty species of mold in people's basements that asthma triggers, health hazards. So we're working this summer with a grant we got from the Michigan Health Equity Foundation to go in and make sure you do downspout disconnects, steel basements, get dehumidifiers. But this is the type of work you have to do because it's not just a climate crisis, it's a public health crisis. Right, when right. people are faced with this flooding, and as, as Jocelyn said, some folks have had to leave the neighborhoods because their homes have become unlivable. We're doing what we can to make the homes more resilient and clean them up. And I think the good news is now, cities like Detroit, cities like Dearborn, using the CDBGDR money, are thinking more holistically about this. But to Russ's point too, how do we change our infrastructure? Can vacant lots be used to store some of this runoff from the streets to take pressure off the system? All that needs to be on the table. We need to think holistically about it. And we need our friends of the North and GLIWA and, and the Drain Commissions to all work together. So I think that we have made some progress, but as the need is so great, you talk about a billion dollars a year here yeah. regionally, yeah. 
And we need to start talking about other policy solutions like wastewater management utilities. There's some legislation in Lansing working its way through and things I know that Nick here will be able to talk about later. But we have to look about different, different funding mechanisms, but then make sure those funding mechanisms are equitable so it's not the least of us paying for all of the recovery. We have to spread the cost of this around yeah. to make our systems resilient. There was a really interesting story in uh, a news letter that I that I follow a few weeks ago, Planet Detroit, about uh, the 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 part of Detroit that is you know really right next to the water and is this wonderful neighborhood with canals and and water access, and how the change in climate and the the damage from storms is also going to influence who's going to be able to live in places like that. That we're going to see. A, a real demographic change because it's going to be more expensive to live in parts like that because you have to gird your your property against the water. Yeah, and that really worries us, right? Because you're talking about climate displacement here. And Jefferson East always tries to make sure that long-term residents can remain in the neighborhoods to reap the benefit of a redeveloping community. But you're right, there are more costs. And there's we have so we have to figure out ways that we protect our most vulnerable residents, get them the support they need so they can remain. But then we have to look at holistic solutions, right? So Jeff Chalmers is a fascinating example, and there's a lot of great citizen science going on with the Jefferson Chalmers Water Project. But how do you do the seawalls? How do you keep the water from the lakes out of the neighborhood? And then how do you deal with the the sewage backups as well too? And how are these solutions structured in a way that you know, those that, that are least able to afford this are able to still be protected and remain in their homes. Mm. One of the ways we do this is we try to combine all the different home repair resources like DTE's energy assistance program, money we have from the state, from the city, to make these homes more resilient, move systems out of the basements, and we're targeting our most vulnerable residents. But we've got a list of more than 250 residents in Jeff Chalmers alone right now that we're working through on the home repair backlog. Yeah. And yeah. so it takes time and expertise um, but you're right, because I do worry about the long-term, res- long-standing residents there, just as, as Jocelyn said, being having to leave because their basements are moldy or they can't deal with the sewage or their laterals have collapsed you know, from their house to the sewer line. And this is where we've really got to dive in all together and find these holistic solutions. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. Let's go to John, who is... In Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but it's from here in Detroit. Hey, John. I'm. Uh, hi. Good morning. I'm actually. I'm actually uh, on the on the uh, east side of Detroit. I have a cell phone number. Uh, it's the Milwaukee. So <laughs> it I'm, says Milwaukee. I'm uh, Brother John Solahowski. Mm-hmm. I'm the uh, director of ministries for the Capuchin Province of Saint Joseph, on the east side, mm-hmm. and the. Uh, um, uh, St. Bonaventure Monastery and the Capuchin Soup Kitchen uh, and Solanus Casey Center are all located on the east side. Yeah. And we've been without power since late Thursday night or early Friday morning. Oh, my goodness. And oh my goodness, uh, it's been very difficult. Um, we've had a lot of uh, um, food spoil in our Meldrum kitchen. Uh, fortunately, we've been able to operate the Connor kitchen. Um, Solanus Casey Center, uh, we've had been able to have people, but mostly in the dark. And it's just been a rather difficult time. And, of course, in the monastery, we have a lot of older friars. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've had problems, you know, with 
with lights, getting around, the elevators aren't working. So it's been a stressful uh, few days for us. Yeah. So, John, give us a sense. I mean, I, I'm really familiar with, with Capuchin. I, uh, when I was a student at University of Detroit Jesuit High School, of course, uh, my service project uh, was there uh, one year. But, but give me a sense of how many people give our listeners a sense of how many people depend on Capuchin for especially food, uh, but, but, but all the other services you provide as well. Yeah, we, we, we serve several thousand meals a week to people at our two sites. We have one at Meldrum and the other at Connor. Fortunately, the Connor one has been open the whole time. Uh, but we also have a residential drug and alcohol treatment center on the east side, um, the Salinas Casey Center, which is a, a place of spirituality. A lot of people come there for confession. So uh, it's pretty, pretty uh, complete type of ministry. Yeah. And when we have a power disruption like this, it makes things really difficult. Friday, we had uh, people come down from an hour away for a confession, and uh, we had to tell them the center was closed. Mm. So mm. it's a difficult thing on a variety of different levels. Yeah. John, I, I really appreciate your calling and sharing what's going on over there. And, of course, we all hope that uh, that the power comes back sometime soon and that uh, we're supposed to get it today. Is that right? OK, well, we'll 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 keep our fingers <laughs> crossed for you. Uh, I really appreciate right, the, the call. Um, OK, uh, uh, Jerome Brown and Josh Elling, it was great to have both of you guys here to talk about what's going on. And Jerome, good luck. Uh, Business owners uh, have it rough in Detroit, yeah, uh, especially rough when, when things like this happen. But uh, but hang in there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Nick Shrek. We've been talking about how bad the damage was from these storms and tornadoes last week. Uh, And now we want to talk about what we have to do to build more resilient infrastructure to protect ourselves from these crazy storms. To do that, we've got Nick Schreck here. He is the Associate Dean of Experiential Education and Associate Professor at Detroit Mercy School of Law. He is an environmental law expert and joins us from time to time to talk about all of these things. Nick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Yeah. So this storm was bad, and the storms we've had over the last year seem to have gotten worse. But I always have to start here when I've got somebody who really understands climate and climate change. Explain for our listeners how we know that this is about the climate changing, that we are experiencing weather that's different because the climate's different. Warmer temperatures in the atmosphere can hold more energy. And energy in this context um, means things like rain. And so when you have warmer temperatures, warmer oceans, which we're seeing record temperatures across the globe with our oceans, that means that in the air it can just hold more moisture. And then so when you see these rain events come through, um, heavier, more intense, more volume of rain. 
And this isn't surprising to, to climate scientists. I mean, people have been, you know, they've been studying this and telling us for decades uh, that this would happen and will happen. And so, but that, that's in essence what's happening. You've got the warmer temperatures, the atmosphere can hold more energy. And so when you have these rainstorms, it just dumps. You know, you get a lot more volume. Mm-hmm. And the, the, it's also true in, in the winter with snowfall. You know, we'll see large, large snows in some areas that typically don't get them, again, because of all that energy in the atmosphere. Yeah. And, you know, the difference between weather and climate is important to talk about as well. Every time I discuss this someplace, somebody says, well, you know, we're not getting very much snow anymore, or sometimes we get these big snows, and that proves that the climate is not somehow, is not changing. There is a difference between what we experience day to day and what we're experiencing long term. Absolutely. And we've got, you know, records going back well over 100 years where we can look at temperature. We can also look at rainfall and snowfall amounts and see how things are shifting and how they're changing. Uh, Keith Matheny in the Free Press had a great article the other day looking at these storms and some of these trends. And, you know, you go back to 1900 from then until today, we've seen a a dramatic increase in the amount of precipitation we're getting here in the Great Lakes region. Um, The Northeast United States as well. I mean, they've been just getting socked all summer um, in New England with, with rain. And it's, it's, these kind of changing weather patterns that are fueled by differences in our climate. So to your point, yeah, when I look out the window or we might experience a warmer than average December or something, you know, that, that all fits into a bigger global picture. Um, you know, some of my colleagues will talk about, you know, this idea of global weirding, you know, Mm. it's, it's, Mm. it's the (laughs) disruption in our climate, you know, the jet stream, you know, typically we could sort of rely on seasonal weather fluctuations because of this, you know, massive, air uh, current moving moving in the atmosphere, that's now kind of weakening and shifting a little bit, again, because of changing ocean temperatures and ocean currents. So there's going to be disruption. And, and then the question is, how can we deal with that disruption in a proactive way rather than, you know, our, our small businesses, our, our homeowners, our, our renters, everybody having to, to do this cleanup over and over again um, after flooding or after uh, long power outages? Uh, because, again, we're going to continue to see these extreme events, and we've got to try and figure out a way to to meet them and to adapt because we're in it, right? Yeah. I mean, Stephen, you know, when we talked years ago, we were, we're still kind of, you know, moving into this area of, of, of a changing climate. We're in it now. And and so it, it's, we've got to be adapting. We can't just be talking hypotheticals. We're experiencing it and living it. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk specifically about utilities and the power companies that we depend on here in, in Southeast Michigan. You and I have had this conversation many times. You have a lot of ideas about how we could change the structure of, of, of our utilities and, and do more to make the system more resilient. But I guess I want to start with your assessment of how they have handled this particular incident, these storms from last week, which I think by anyone's measure were extraordinary. I mean, the, the yes. damage that they did was not something anyone really could have anticipated. And so to some extent, uh, you know, DTE and consumers have a much bigger job uh, because uh, of that. It's still their job, though, to make sure people have power. So right. how are they doing in response to what we saw last week? Well, you know, to your point, dramatic uh, lightning event, right? I mean, so we're, we're talking about the rain and the flooding. But, um, I, I mean, Wednesday night, so I, I live um, near Birmingham in, in Oakland County, and 
for whatever reason, you know, lightning was just sitting over my house mm -hmm. for four hours. You know, I told my students on Thursday morning in class, like, sorry if I'm not at my, top of my game today. I didn't sleep last night because there was so much lightning and so much thunder. And it wasn't like a normal storm where it just rolls through, it was just sitting right on top of us. So you think about those lightning strikes, um, you know, often that, that can just, you know, be channeled into the ground and, and not disrupt the power system. But that's an issue. Um, of course, one of our, our bigger problems is... Um, deferred maintenance and things like tree trimming and the strength of our utility lines. So often you'll see with a thunderstorm, you've got higher winds, moist soil from all this rain. That means the trees, the root systems aren't as strong, so they can topple over with, with wind, hits the power lines, knocks them out. So, um, you know, that, that's been a big issue that they've been dealing with tree, tree trimming and all of that, um, which we've talked about many times, but you know, in, in essence, I mean, you know, how do you really rate something, you know, in terms of 200,000 or 400,000 people being without power? It's a huge disruption. Um, and the thing that I really have been you know, asking and demanding and pushing our, our utilities to do is to get these outage times down. You know, we're probably going to experience from time to time a few mm -hmm. hours of power outages, you know, maybe a day. But these multi-day events, they are just crushing uh, businesses and, and also people, families. You know, it's just in this past year, I've had a five-day power outage and a two-day power wow. outage at home. Wow. And, and, and you know, it, it just it, it wears on you, right? And, and it's got huge economic impacts as well. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little more about DTE and consumers and, and utilities and what your your solution looks mm -hmm. like for them you've talked before about the uh, the idea that they could be publicly owned right. and that you feel like that would improve some of the relationship at least between them and their and their customers but beyond that the infrastructure itself is just not sufficient Right. So, um, you know, we've got above ground utility lines in most of Southeast Michigan. And so that, you know, the, the problems with whether it's trees falling on them or, you know, uh, some days power goes out, you wonder why, you know, a car hit a, hit a utility pole and, and knocks out power, you know. So, so above ground utilities, which we have, um, they're more vulnerable to outages than below ground. Now, it's very expensive and time consuming, of course, to, to bury power lines. Um, but in new construction, you know, the kind of best practice is to have those lines underground. I'd like to see an assessment of how we can do that, you know, kind of community by community um, over the next 30, 40, 50 years, how can we get these lines um, buried below ground so that we, we take away that that risk of, of, of trees and other, other sorts of impacts? Beyond that, um, you know, we need to diversify, continue to diversify our power sources. Um, you know, the more the more rooftop solar that we can have, you know, people that as a backup, you know, can be running solar panels on their roof, having a battery bank, you know, in the basement or in a, in a room in their home, that they can absorb some of these outages, mm -hmm. keep the refrigerator running or, you know, keep oxygen machines running, you know, for many people that have, have health concerns. So I think there's, there's ways that we can distribute our power generation more broadly, which then also means that if we have something be knocked offline, you know, it hasn't really been talked about, but uh, Fermi 2, the DTE nuclear reactor down mm -hmm. in Monroe, it's actually been offline uh, this, this past couple of weeks because of a, uh, not a radiation issue, but the, but there's a leak as part of their cooling system, um, and that's a you know a huge amount of the power that DT normally generates, mm -hmm. and yet we don't even you know we don't even we don't even talk about the, those kinds of impacts just from sort of maintenance at these existing big facilities. So in any case, distributing more, having having more rooftop solar, more um, generation, widely varied, and so that people can have some of those resiliencies um, when we when we have these major storm events. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Mike in Northville. Mike, what's on your mind? Hi. No, actually, he's kind of supported my point of we're the, in the bottom 10% of states in power reliability. Hmm. And in the 
worse 20% for cost. Mm. So we've had plenty of money to fix this for decades, and we haven't. And I want to know how do we hold DTE accountable for not delivering power for decades. And by the way, I only lost power for three days and two days, so I've got your guest beat. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> but we didn't That's have we lot, didn't man. have uh, didn't have power outages this last time. We were one of the lucky West Siders that yeah. Uh, yeah. didn't have it this time. But other states don't have this. That's true. I have lots of relatives in Illinois. They had a house destroyed by a tornado, but other than that, no one's had more than a day without power. Yeah. Mike, I really appreciate the call and that and that question. I mean, I, I think lots of people who live here have that same question, especially when they look at DTE's profits, when they look at the pay for executives at DTE. And I mean, look, I mean, people who do hard jobs deserve to be fairly compensated. I don't think anyone's questioning that. But when the service you provide isn't as sterling as uh, as it should be, you know, I think people start to ask questions about how you spend money. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, one of the things you mentioned a moment ago, Stephen, was a publicly owned or, or regulated utility versus versus a public private partnership or privately run utility. You know, one of the pieces there is accountability. So like the caller just mentioned, I mean, how the way that we hold our utility company so they have a monopoly, right? They just—they're the ones that provide us our power. It's very difficult for us to to, to generate our own and to be wholly independent. Mm-hmm. We need to work together to have a distributed power system for sure. But then accountability is a question, and then of course, Detroit Edison and Consumers Energy—they've been very powerful lobbyists in our legislature. You know, they're they're very politically active, and so accountability has been a real problem. I think we're fortunately starting to see some work towards accountability in the legislature because of all of these failures. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the amount of time it takes to get power back on is really um, just just terrible that we've, we've got here in Southeast Michigan. And then beyond that, yeah, cost. You know, we've got our, our peer states, they're, they're paying less and getting better service, so something's got to give. And that's where we need to look at, I think, the structure of these utility companies and something has to change so that we can hold them accountable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike, really appreciate the call. Uh, and the insights there. Uh, let's go next to David in Washtenaw County. David, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Hey. Um, I go ahead. No, no, go ahead, David. Okay. Um, I live in Northwest Washtenaw County, and um, I live in a rural area. And somebody has pointed out. I've got an echo here, so excuse me. <laughs> no radio on. We're not hearing it. So go ahead. Okay. Um, I am, but it's making me talk slowly. So, so anyway, um, this is a regional problem. We need to look at the town, the city, the suburb, and also the rural participation in solving this problem. Now, I don't live in the Rouge watershed. I live in the Huron River watershed. But I live about 15, 20 miles out of Ann Arbor, and I can play an important role in reducing flooding in that urban area. Hmm. And I do that by, I, number one, I have a farm pond. And that's uh, one acre. And at this time of year, it's typically very dry. And it'll drop, um, you know, a half a foot, a foot, two feet, three feet sometimes, depending on how dry the summer is. Well, it was a foot down over a week ago. And we got five inches of rain in one night. And guess what? That thing filled up. And it's awesome. It's full again like it normally is in November, December. And all that water didn't go to Ann Arbor. It went in my pond where it's appreciated by bass bluegills and channel cats that we use for for fishing 
Uh, a pond's a great thing to have on a hot day. You can jump in and swim. Yeah. yeah. And also we plant trees, wow. fruit trees as well as timber trees. Uh, I planted a, a, a sycamore tree about 11 years ago. I bought the sapling for $8. <laughs> it's 30 feet tall now. Oh, it's my goodness. in diameter. Oh, when it's goodness. mature, it can, it can uh, uh, retain 800 gallons of water per year. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we the, really are uh, David, I don't, I don't want to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time on the show. But that's a, that's such a wonderful example of conscientiousness and individuality, right? This idea that that all of us can play some role in trying to make this a little better. And Nick, people who live in rural areas like David oh, have yeah. different opportunities in those. Definitely, areas. yeah. More more land, you've got more opportunities. But but on on the flip, um, you know, here in urban areas, there's a lot we can do too. I mean, things like like rain barrels, you know, we talked about uh, downspout disconnects, which is really important, keeping that initial rush of volume from getting into the sewer system. But a rain barrel on, on your downspout where you can collect that water, then use it to water your plants. That's great, you know. And then, and then it, it's a, a savings for people, but it's also a help um, from from that water getting into the sewage system. So that's you know smaller scale rain gardens, um, you know, diverting downspouts into a low area on property, using our vacant land again as, as was discussed earlier as a retention for that stormwater runoff. These are all things that we can do in an urban environment. And you know, and one other thing too, you know, we are all part of this big system. You know, hundred some uh, communities that are part of the Detroit Water and Sewage District, Great Lakes Water Authority distribution system, a lot needs to be done upstream, right? So we're talking about impacts to Jefferson Chalmers, we're talking about impacts in Detroit, but, you know, feeding into that system are all of these communities, um, you know, geographically north of here. And so we can do more up there. And, and, and I would love to see things like where we have these flooding events, an alert that says, hey, um, you know, maybe don't run the washing machine. Maybe don't use um, water intensive things that are going to be discharging a lot of water during these rain events, which is just, again, adding more volume to the system. Yeah. You know, we see that in other parts of the country. We haven't developed that kind of, a, of an alert system here where it's like, hey, you know, maybe stop uh, discharging so much water from, from appliances and things while we've got all this stuff coming in from rain. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Nick Shrek of UD Mercy Law School. Always great to have you here with us on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That's going to do it for our podcast today. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our program director is Adam Fox. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Provethen. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bodian and Will Sessions. Editing for the podcast is done by David Lyons.